0: All right, welcome back. As we continue, I want to uh, mention a few announcements. First of all, uh, real life. Our youth ministry has a trivia night tonight from six to eight. They'll be meeting here. Masks, mask wearing, but they'll be having a trivia night. And if you like trivia, you can come too. No, I shouldn't say that. It's not my not my right to say that. Um, we're collecting uh, baby bottles. CareNet for CareNet. Uh, you take them, you put money in them, change, checks, bills, whatever you want, put them in and bring them back here. Then we take them over to CareNet to help support that ministry. And uh, we would uh, love to have you do that. This Wednesday night, we have our kids' club for, for our, our younger children, and we also have real life for our teens. And then also, Robin Kilgore, who is our educational coordinator. Uh, we need some children 's ministry volunteers for Sunday mornings or for Wednesday nights, whichever you can do. Uh, they would love to have some volunteers to help us help us with the kids. We would appreciate that. We are in the book of John. One of the things that I uh, love about uh, expository preaching is that we go through a book and we have to go through wherever the book we go where the book takes us you don 't get to choose you don 't get to choose and nothing wrong with sometimes topical messages. But uh, I want us to, to go through books. I mean, over the years, we've done Mark, we've done James, we've done Philippians, we've done Colossians, we've done Jonah, we've done Malachi, we've done uh, quite a few of the Old Testament books so that we are, over time, we're learning the Bible. We're learning the Bible together. And, and I love doing that. And one of the things, though, is you come up against things like today. We're going to talk today about uh, in John chapter 2 where Jesus cleanses the temple. And so suddenly we're faced with this... Um, Situation where to be frank, Jesus seems to lose it. Right? We see a side of Jesus that is not a side that a lot of people are comfortable with. You get a lot of people that say, I like the Jesus who says love. I like the Jesus of love. I like that. The meek and mild and lowly Jesus. I like that. But here we're going to get another side of Jesus. It is no less the Jesus of love, but it's a different side of it. And And it's good for us to see this because this gives us a more complete picture of God and who our God is through Jesus Christ. But let me just review a little bit. In John chapter 1, we talked about that love is the foundation of the universe. It's the foundational issue of the universe. We talked about that we now have this intimate access with the Father. We talked about and explored this idea that you are now an heir. You are destined for something. We talked about doctrine and how... For many people, doctrine is kind of this negative word, but actually doctrine leads to transformation. And so we talked about the doctrine of incarnation and how it transforms us, how in realistic, applicable ways, it transforms us from the inside out. We saw uh, John the Baptist pointing to Jesus. And what was he doing? Taking attention away from himself. And so we saw how John the Baptist found this way of freedom. It's not not thinking too little of yourself. It's not thinking too much of yourself. It's simply focusing on Jesus and getting things oriented correctly in your life. And so he got past himself, this idea of self-forgetfulness. He points away from himself and toward Jesus. And he says, I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. There he is, the Lamb of God. We see Jesus calling his disciples like he's calling people, like he's calling us today, calling his disciples to follow him the same way he's calling us to follow him in this day and age. We went into John 2, we saw the wedding at Cana, where Jesus turned the water into wine. And we hear these great words from Mary. She doesn't understand exactly what Jesus is doing. She doesn't understand exactly what he means when he's talking to her. She just turns to the servants and she says, whatever he tells you to do, you do it. I'm used to him being cryptic like this, and I've learned to trust him. So, whatever he says to do, you do it. That obedience that is a model for us. And so, now we're in John chapter 2, verses 13 to 25. I want to just read through 22 right now. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, "'Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market.'" His disciples remembered that it was written, "'Zeal for your house will consume me.'" Then The the Jews then responded to him, "'What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this?' Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and then they believed the Scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. And so in this passage, we're seeing something that, that's very crucial for us. This, this has, has a lot of meaning for us. Um, We have to address this, though, because Jesus gets angry. He makes a whip. He inflicts pain on some people. This could be a difficult thing to work through. But here he is at the temple, at the house of worship. This is an important place to him. All right, Let's just just get this straight from the beginning. This building is not the temple. This building is a church where the temple meets, because we're the temple now. And the problem for us is that sometimes worship can get mechanical. You know, we get used to it. It becomes second nature. We sing the words of songs that we know well so that they don't even mean anything. We forget to think about what the meaning of the words are. We forget to personalize songs, apply them to ourselves as we sing them. We hear a passage maybe that we're familiar with and we zone out. This is one of the things I really struggle with when when we talk about Christmas, or, or talk about Easter. I mean, how many different ways can you talk about Christmas? How many different ways can you talk about Easter? It's pretty straightforward. And so and so for, for many people, you know, they come to an Easter service, and boom, they're just heads rolling back, mouths open, blah, blah, because they've heard it all before. And this is a problem. It can get mechanical. Or maybe sometimes we can get critical with someone. We disagree with something they say, and then we just tune them out. I can struggle with that. I can listen to somebody you know, online or, or if I'm at another, another church and, and maybe I personally feel like the, the person teaching said something that I think is kind of goofy or wrong. And then I'm like, well, forget him. Pull my phone out, act like I'm looking at the Bible and check sports scores or something. Why? Because it's so easy to check it out. It's so easy to just, to just become too familiar. It, um, or even, you know, we get so used to music, we, sometimes we can ignore it. I thought about this when uh, the elder George Bush died not too long ago, and they had a funeral service at, at an Episcopal church. Now, uh, I, I grew up going occasionally, once in a while, to a, an Episcopal church. I'm, I'm a little familiar with it. Um, I did get confirmed because the idea at uh, thirteen fourteen of drinking wine sounded really good to me. So that was my big motivation for getting confirmed. And And, uh, and for the elder George Bush, he grew up in the Episcopal church, uh, about in the middle of life, he had a real transformation and, and uh, seemed to have really turned to the Lord and and uh, gotten saved and showed it in a number of different ways, very low-key. But his final funeral was at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. It's a very impressive place if you've ever been there. And and I know something about it. I know something about the people who are the, the priests there in the Episcopal Church. And I know, I know where they stand. And I know for many of them... Um, Basically, they don't believe in God like we would believe. He's just far off. He's distant. We just do our best and see how we can do. And so I'm watching this funeral, and they're singing some, singing some hymns, great hymns of the faith. And I'm thinking, by what I've read this person has said, who's up there leading it, he doesn't believe what he's singing. How do you do that? Well, it's because it becomes Mechanical. It becomes old hat. You just get used to it. And so we tend to think it's not such a big deal. We don't worry about it. But what's happening in this passage, they haven't thought about it. They've just gotten used to it. It's just become mechanical, and Jesus interrupts. Jesus decides to, to take control. And so what do we see? The first point, we see, in a sense, and I use this word guardedly, the desecration of the temple. But what we're seeing is what how they've desecrated. I'm not talking about what Jesus did, all right? When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables, exchanging money. So it's festival time. Now, Jerusalem, I've read a number of books on this, and they talk about this. They think Jerusalem had about eight, maybe 80,000 people who lived there at that time. But during Festivals, it would swell to 300,000, 400,000, 500,000. Sometimes on the Passover, they think it hit one to two million people would in, just come in this influx into this city. So it's, it's just the city is just overrun with people. And so many of them, obviously, they're traveling from all over the world. They couldn't bring a sacrifice. And so the idea of having sacrifices for sale is not a bad idea. Because people need them. To have someone who's selling a dove for a sacrifice is not a bad idea because people need them. They needed it a long way. And then there were money changers, we know, from what was going on there. Why? Because every little kingdom all over the world had their own coins they minted. And you would come to the temple, and so they would have you change your coins because the people selling doves, the people selling the, the sheep, they only take Roman coin. So you've got to go to someone who can change your coin from Samaria into Roman coin. And they, they would have people that would do that. That's not a bad idea. If you've ever traveled overseas, you've had to exchange money, right? You know, And you're glad you can because people in France don't take American dollars. You've got to get it exchanged. So this is what's going on. And you needed a specialist who knew all the coins, and he knew what they were worth. So these are good ideas. Here's the problem. The problem is two things. First of all, they were cheating people. Second of all, the problem is where this was taking place. And that's an important thing for us to consider because it's happening where worship takes place. I mean, you think about it. People are praying while people are screaming out, you need your money change, money changer right here. You need an SI We got the finest. You know, people are yelling at the place where worship takes place, and so that creates a real problem. I uh, I love sports. I love to go to games. I love to go to all kinds of games. Um, I played a lot of sports as I was growing up, and uh, I love. And I can be kind of a nerd about it. And I, I don't know how you say that. I can be kind of weird about it because I don't like to talk during games. I'm actually watching the game. A while back, um, my wife and I went with uh, another couple to an Orioles game, and the other guy kept wanting to talk to me during the game. And I'm just like, I don't care. I don't care what color you paint your living room. I, You know, I... I I do that and and i am I am kind of nerdy i I score games I keep scoring games, I keep track of balls and strikes, I keep track of five balls, line drives, ground outs, fielders choices, I keep track of squeeze i take I'll sacrifice bunts, all that stuff I like to keep track of that because it helps me I, feel, I like i like knowing what's going on I like thinking that I know what the manager's thinking right and in fact one time i'll, I'll say <laughs> there's a rabbit trail. there you go um one time I took a group of middle schoolers. Hey, if you ever get involved in ministry with middle schoolers, if you want them to listen to you when you talk about the Bible, you've got to do something else that's so extraordinary that they think you're a little bit on the edge of supernatural. That really works. Let me tell you, that really works. So we went to a Baltimore Orioles games with about 30 middle schoolers, right? So I'm, keep, I'm scoring. Now, this is a long time ago, so you don't know who the players I'm, I'm talking about. Lee May is this big slugger for the Baltimore Orioles. He gets up. He hits a first at bat. He hits a line drive, bounces, hits the wall. He gets a double right below us, maybe 30 seats over, right there on that wall. Next time up, third, fourth inning. He hits a deep fly. The outfielder catches it at that wall. Third time he's up, same pitcher. He's getting tired, seventh inning. Count goes to three and one. And all of a sudden, I realize Lee May is going to swing at this ball with all his might. He's got nothing to lose. And so I stood up in front of all these teenagers, and I said, that batter is going to hit a home run, and I'm going to catch it. And I walked down the aisle. I walked down the steps to the walking aisle. I walked over about seven or eight seats, and I stood there. And he hit the ball, and I was like, I'm going to catch this ball. It kind of curved. It landed three rows down and about six seat o- seats over, right? So I was like, "Ah." Oh. So I'm coming back, and they're like, oh, how did you know? How did you know? Well, here's how I knew. He'd already hit two to that spot. Pitcher's tired. Three and one count. He's going to jack this ball if he gets a hold of it. But they didn't know that. And I'm just like, I know things. I can see things. From then on, man, Bible time. I can see things. Yes, speak to us, Almighty Bob. See, I like that, I like, I like that kind of stuff. I, like to, I don't like to be disturbed. Now, think about this. In worship, they were being disturbed. In worship, there's some guy going around get your doves there, get your grade A doves right here. This is the kind God wants. Cheapest price in the temple, right here. Right? While you're praying, while you're singing while there's teaching, think what that would do. Worship would be almost impossible because there'd be so many competing noises and people. And the leaders of the temple were okay with this because the money being made was so important to them. The love of money had corrupted the worship of God. I want to tell you, and I'm not trying to say, oh, look at it. That's why we're very careful around here about how we talk about money and how often we talk about money because it can creep in and it can corrupt. And I never want that to happen. I never want anyone to think that we're glad you're here because you might give money to this church. That is not true. That is not true. And it shows where their heart is. And they had it in what is called the court of the Gentiles. And I want to show you a picture here. Here's a picture, uh, uh, a painting, a uh, drawing of, of the temple. And, and you can see the main temple complex there. And if you look down towards the bottom right side, you see that low wall, okay? That wall was the wall that kept the Gentiles... From, oh, I'm sorry, we don't have one screen, do we? Well, I forgot one screen's out. It was, yeah. That wall is what kept the wall, that wall kept the Gentiles from entering into the courts of the Jews because Gentiles were not allowed. They didn't believe Gentiles were good enough. And so for a Gentile who wanted to worship and wanted to honor God, he had to stay outside of that wall. In fact, on that wall, and they still have one of the plaques today, whoever, if you are not a Jew, I don't, basically I'm rewording it. If you are not a Jew and you cross this wall, your blood is on your own hands. We will kill you. We will kill you. And so there's this wall. And outside of that wall is where the Gentiles worship, because the Jews believed they were so special that they couldn't worship with Gentiles. They worshiped themselves in the main temple complex. All the selling, all the buying, all the money exchanging was happening on the Gentile side of that wall. That's where it was happening. See, this is what incensed Jesus so much, because you see what's happening. This This is a racial put-down. This is a cultural put-down. This is a status put-down. This is saying, you're not good enough. So we'll have all the animals. We'll have all the crap, all the smell, all the everything, the, the noises. You put up with that. We go in, and we don't have to put up with that. And so, in a sense, the people who needed it the most the people who are forced to endure the most and struggle the most and have trouble the most. We, We want that to be the opposite here. We want to say, and we do say, everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. And anything is possible when God is involved. We have had, from time to time, I've what wasn't that long ago a person just came up to me and said, I'm an atheist. Is it a problem for me to be here? And I said, no, it's not. I'm thrilled you're here. What I didn't say was, because the word of God is sharper than two-edged sword and it does not return void, and so you are now sitting in the place where God can get a hold of you. What's the best place for a person who doesn't believe in God to sit? Right here right here, or right next to you at work, or right next to you at class, or wherever it is. So everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. Anything's possible. And they were flipping that over the, the opposite way because it can still be a problem today. It's still, I mean, how does it happen? Well, people decide their personal idea of God is what they will worship. The Jews were polluting the worship for their own profit, for their own wants, for their comfort. And it was the leaders mainly that were doing it that Herod had placed in charge. And so people decide their own personal idea of how God is, is what they will worship. So if you don't think God is immediate and you don't think God is real, then to make money deceitfully off of his name is no big deal. It's no problem. Or just to let your mind wander and not to care. It's no big deal. Or maybe you feel a twinge of guilt about something and then you just forget about it. Just just say, that's okay, forget about it. It's no big deal or to decide you want something so bad that God is irrelevant to that decision, that's okay. It's no big deal because what you're doing is you're saying, this is the kind of God I'm going to worship. He's not that real. But see, God is real, and he is immediate, and things have consequences. Years ago, I had a friend. I went to college. We were roommates in college, and uh, he he uh, he was kind of a different kind of a dude. And for me to say someone is different just shows you how far, past the line they are and different i mean it, but he was i liked him and we had good times together and he was fun and um he got uh cancer and uh and i called him on the phone he was living in texas at the time and i called him on the phone and i said don dude I, re- I just heard i'm really sorry he goes yeah i just found out i said okay so what's next what's the plan he said well they want to start this and they want to do this and then he says i'm not going to do it i said what he said, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. I don't want to do it. I said, Don, are they, are they telling you that, there's a, that you have a good chance of recovery? Yeah, they're telling me i got a pretty good chance of recovery. Then you got to do it, dude. I don't want to do it. I'm not going to do it. It's going to be so, he says, it's going to ruin me. as a chemo, blah, blah, blah. I said, yeah, but you might live 20 or 30 more years. He says, uh, what do they know? And I don't understand it. I mean, I you know it's so weird. I can see as you're looking, you're thinking, that's a stupid. I don't understand it. And he wouldn't do it, and it it killed him. It killed him five years later, four years later. Because things are real, and you can say they're not real and you can ignore them, but they're still real, and reality has a way of intruding, and God is real, and he is immediate, he is here, he is now. And things have consequences. I used to take uh, groups on ski trips, um, and and uh, you know, as the leader of a ski trip, you're always worried that somebody's going to get hurt because then you then you have to ski down to the to the Red Cross area and help arrange, you know, and then you lose all your skiing time. So they've really ruined your day, right? And so you know, sometimes when you ski, uh, especially if if One time I skied on the the west coast or in Colorado, and and it it amazed me because you'd go down this, and there'd be a hard turn, and it would just be a sheer cliff. There'd be no fence. It was like in Colorado. They said, you're big boys and girls. Take care of yourself, you know? And so I can sit there and think as I'm skiing, this slope is straight, and I'm going to ski straight, and I'll ski right off the edge of that curve and hit a tree or go down a cliff, and reality will impede upon my enjoyment, Because that's what reality does. In life, we submit our wants and desires to the reality of things. I submit to the shape of the mountain because of this. Reality demands submission, even if I don't want it or like it. Reality demands submission, even if you don't want it, even if you don't like it, Reality says, this is what's going to happen. This is real. And the Bible keeps telling us, God is real. He is immediate. He is here. He is now. And there are consequences. I do not demand that the mountain changes. The mountain demands that I change. Christianity does this. Christianity has always done this. Christianity demands changes to preconceived ideas. Christianity demands changes to cultural ideas. Christianity demands changes to biases, national biases, national sins even. I mean, look at Nineveh. A whole nation was called to account. Christianity demands changes to our individual wants and our individual desires. Reality always surprises us and disturbs us. And God is the ultimate reality. And so the question is for us, Is God disturbing you? Is God surprising you? Is God challenging you? Is God crossing you? Is God confronting your cultural bias? Is God confronting your expectations? If you are trying to follow him, he will, because he's reality. He will challenge you. If you're totally comfortable and totally at ease, that can be a dangerous place. That's what leads to the desecration of the temple. So we see the desecration of the temple. Now we're going to see the fury of the Savior. So he he made a whip out of cords and drove them all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So what did Jesus see? He saw the money changers, and what were they doing? They were cheating people. We know, I was reading one guy who's read some of ancient documents and then we know there was a temple tax that every 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 adult paid once a year if they came to the temple, they paid the temple tax. It was required. It was the equivalent basically of 2 days wages. And what would happen is they would charge them a whole day's wage to convert the coin to the right coin. So they would end up paying 3 days. It a 50% profit in a moment. Just like that. Ripping people off. All the offerings had to be inspected for purity. And it was a good idea to start with, but then what happened was it became corrupted. They started rejecting almost all the offerings. They would say, I'm sorry, your lamb is not good enough, but we have some for sale over here for about 10 times what you paid for this one. But they're a pre-approved. You're guaranteed to get through. And so they would do that. It was like an entrance fee. They would just charge people money to worship God. So Jesus made a whip, and this is not him losing himself in anger. This is him looking and making a plan, and it's a part of his plan for his whole life. And this is a revealing picture, like I said, that many people struggle with because Jesus seems out of control, but he's not because even his anger comes out of love. He loved when people worship God. And to see that Being ruined by the love of money made him angry because he loved. Because worship was what the people needed most. Worship of God, he had this love of the holiness of God, the purity of God. We we said that in the passage, zeal for your house will will consume me. Zeal is that idea of a passion. Zeal. That word for zeal also means the intensity of a fire. It's a a very very strong word. It's this idea that he's going to... Cleanse. He's going to purify. There are many passages that talk about this in the Old Testament concerning the Messiah. One of one that they would all know, they would all have memorized, it would all be in their heart, is from Malachi chapter 3. It says, But who can endure the day of His coming? Who can stand when He appears? For He will be like a refiner's fire. There's that fire. There's that zeal. Or a a launderer's soap. He's going to cleanse. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites. Those people running the temple, there's going to be, he says, he's going to purify them and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men, will have men and women who will bring offerings in righteousness. And so we see this, Malachi 3.2, they knew this passage. They knew the signs of the Messiah, and this is one of the signs of the Messiah. He will cleanse and he will purify like a refiner's fire. And we see that idea of refiner's fire in different places in Scripture also. When when God cuts the uh, cuts the, the, the covenant with Abraham, we've talked about this. I don't, I don't want to go too much over it, but they would take these animals. If you're going to make a covenant, a king with another king or something, anything like that that's big. You would take these animals in a ditch and you would cut them in half and you'd lay them along the edge and the blood would run down. And then the person who is the greater would walk through the blood up the middle of the ditch and get the blood on him and then would say you may do to me what we did to these animals if I break this covenant. And then the lesser would walk up and walk through same thing you may do to me what we did to these animals if I break this covenant. And God tells Abraham I'm going to cut a covenant with you. And Abraham's not thrilled. Because he knows one of us is going to die for breaking this covenant. I don't think it's going to be God. I think I'll be the one that would break this covenant because I know me. I know what kind of person I am. I'm a covenant breaker. I'm a sinner. So if I walk through that blood, I'm a dead man. And what happens in that passage, if you remember what happens, in, and, and it, it makes it, you, you can, as you parse it out, it says a light goes through, And then a refiner's fire goes through. Where's Abraham? God put him to sleep because he's afraid Abraham's going to suddenly think he's an Olympic athlete and bolt, right? Because he realizes he's a dead man. So God puts Abraham to sleep and then God goes through the blood twice. He goes through the blood and he says, you may do to me what we did to these animals if I break this covenant. Then he goes the second time You may do to me what we did to these animals if you break the covenant. And in a sense, Jesus was condemned to death on that day because he's the covenant, man. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the one that enforces the penalty of the covenant. And so they knew, right? They knew this idea of refiner's fire, this idea of zeal that's very familiar to them. And so this zeal that Jesus has, it's this passion for purity, this passion for holiness, like a refiner's fire. Now, how does what, what is that? All right. What happens? We have, you dig metal out of the ground, say gold. You dig gold out of the ground, and that gold is not pure. It has impurities in it. Those are, that's called the dross. So then they put the gold in this, in this vat or whatever it is, this big metal, and they heat it. And it takes time, it takes time, and, and the gold starts melting. And, the gold's, and finally, the gold is liquid. It's, it's hot. And the dross, the impurities, cannot stay in the gold under heat. They have to move away. And so the dross rises to the top. And suddenly there's this stuff, like a film or, 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 or black or, you know, whatever color the, on the top. And then the refiner takes a skimmer and he skims very carefully the dross off, taps it over here where it'll be reheated again and re-skimmed, and he skims, and then he waits because it takes time. More dross comes up, he skims. More dross comes up, he skims. When does he know he's done? When does he know the gold has reached the desired level of purity and they, they have ways of figuring that? He knows this. The dross stops rising, and when he looks down, he sees a perfect reflection of himself. Now think of the implications of that. Our God... Is a refiner. He knows there are things in our life that are incompatible with walking with Jesus. And sometimes he brings heat or he allows heat into our lives to begin to separate that dross. And he skims it off so that we become more pure. And how does he know when it reaches the desired purity? He sees himself when he looks. He's making each one of us to become more and more like Jesus. That's what the refiner does. The heat comes. We have all kinds of desires and passions and wants that can interfere with living for God and walking with Christ. And it takes time. It's not a quick thing. It takes time for him to accomplish his goal. God wants to be so involved in our lives to refine us that our focus, our one aim above all else is that... that that we would be more and more like him. Other things that are good, they're not bad, they're good. They'll become secondary. They don't become primary, they become secondary. So that our focus, like John the Baptist, is on him, Jesus first. The anger with Jesus here is that they've lost this desire. And they are keeping others from reaching it also. They have lost their heart for God. And they're interfering with others who are trying to worship and broaden and grow their heart for God. And so the third thing we see is the promise of the resurrection, verses 18 to 22. The Jews responded to him, "'What sign can you show to us to prove your authority to, all, to do with all this?' And G- Jesus answered them, "'Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days.'" They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So it's interesting here. They don't come to him and say, hey, you that was wrong. You shouldn't have done that. No, what did they say? They say, what sign do you give that you have the authority to have this zeal, to cleanse this temple? How can... Who made you? You know, who died and made you king, right? So there. So, so they're asking for a sign. Why? Because they know there are signs of the Messiah. They know that. They knew the scriptures. They knew Malachi and how the how the uh, the Messiah would come and cleanse. But see, they thought they thought righteousness. They thought cleansing came. They thought it was going to come through f- kicking the Romans out. They thought it was going to come through war. They were looking for something along those lines. So they're just saying this. They're saying basically, are you saying you're the Messiah? Is that why you did this? But Jesus didn't say what they wanted, right? His answer was not the answer they were looking for. I think they knew he was speaking figuratively. They knew he wasn't talking about rebuilding the physical, temp- physical temple that took 46 years to build. They knew his feet, but they weren't sure what he was trying to say. And so they mocked him. And we know even later, than life, uh, uh, later in his life uh, at the trial, they brought somebody up and said, hey, this man said he was going to destroy the temple. He's anti-Jew. You know, he's, he's not one of us. See, what they were looking for was this. Just as I scourge this temple, I'm going to scourge this land. I'm going to cleanse it of impurities. I'm going to cleanse it of foreigners. I'm going to cleanse it of the Romans. And I'm going to do it by force. Starting today, the sword will swing, the hammer will fall, and blood will flow. Join me in cleansing this land. Let's raise an army and kill Romans. That's what they wanted to hear. That's what they thought was the sign of the Messiah, this cleansing. And they were, I believe historically, they were especially looking for it at this time. Um, If you go to our website, there's there's some things I've done that's called Not a Message, Just a Thought. Um, and one of them is on Shiloh. It's a prophecy that when, uh, and let me just, you can, you can, I'm not going to explain it. You can go, look, go watch it. You guys are adults. You can do your own thing. Basically it's saying when the Jews lose the power to enforce the death penalty, which to them is the ultimate legal penalty, when they lose that power, look for the Messiah. The Messiah will come. It's from the Old Testament. And uh, you can look that up. And the Jews just recently had lost the ability to enforce the death penalty. And the Messiah shows up. That's why when when they think Jesus is not really the right Messiah, they take him and they say to Pontius, we can't kill him, you got to kill him. They're admitting they don't have that power. And so Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah. And they're like, no, that's not the right answer. Because because if he had said, yes, raise an army, let's start killing Rome, they would have said, okay, yes, this is someone we can manage. This is someone we can use. This is someone who will help us retain our place in this society and make money. But he's saying, you believe you can be in the presence of God and be righteous at this temple? Jesus is saying, I'm the temple. You think the key is the priesthood? I'm the ultimate, final high priest. You count on sacrifice and the blood on the altar as an atonement for sin. I'm the altar and I'm the sacrifice. I'm the atonement. All these things, all these things you do, all this stuff you all this scripture, it points to me. It points to me. I'm the fulfillment of it all. And we can look back and we can be all self-righteous, like, how could they do that? How could they miss him? It was so obvious but we can do the same thing we think we have it together we can think that we're holy or righteous we think we're sometimes we can think we look we can look down on people that we're above others and we miss the message we miss the presence of Jesus just like they did that's why people so many people in churches who claim to be born again are so cranky what's the deal with that why are so many who name the name of Christ so sensitive to criticism? Why are church fights so common? Now, some of you may not have grown up in a church, and so you, let me tell you, you have been spared some really some stuff. Let me tell you, like church fights. You don't know what I'm talking about. But uh, four or five years ago, four years ago, whatever, my wife and I went on a trip. We 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 got on the motorcycle, and uh, and we headed out. And uh, I don't like traveling on the interstate on, our, on the motorcycle. So we were traveling back roads, which is so fun. I love it. We're traveling back roads, and we're going, a lot of us on 58, going through the southern half of Virginia all the way across. And uh, we have our little communicator, so we talked. I mean, it was just an awesome trip. You know, you, you can see things better than in a car. And we talked, and we prayed, and we... Blah, blah, blah. And so we're, we're driving along, and I just happened to glance over, and here was this, this kind of small but old and beautiful old country church and the name of the church was the church of the blessing of God with fire and tongues following. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. You know, and here's this beautiful. So we're going along and we hadn't even, I'm serious. We hadn't gone a quarter of a mile. And here's a newer little church that said the church of the double blessing of God of with fire and tongues following. And I looked at that and I said to my wife, I think I see a church split. You know, we're all in the blessing of God, fire and tongues, and we have a big fight, so we're going to start our others, and ours is the double blessing, twice as much, right? Why does this happen in churches? It's because people have lost sight of what's important. This is what happens when our wants and our desires take first place ahead of Jesus. With the promise of the resurrection, Jesus is saying, like he said to Nathanael, I'm the bridge to God. Trying to follow God on your own is exhausting. It's depressing. It's disappointing. But now, because of Jesus, Scripture tells us that the veil that separated the Holy of Holies where God's present was tore from the top to the bottom so that we have... This place where one man could go once a year after weeks of ceremonial cleansing, making sure he had the right blood, making sure he had everything just right, could go in. And they would tie a rope around his waist because if he did something wrong, he'd be struck dead in the presence of God and no one's going in after that that body, right? So they'd just pull him out and say, you know, and that would be that. Once a year. Once a year. And Jesus says, no, any moment. Any moment. Think about that. At any moment, you can enter into the presence of God. The throne room of God with all the angels, in there and they're singing, and they're praising, and they're worshiping, and you go, God, listen, I need to. T-. And God says, hey, everyone, be quiet. I don't know if he does that. I Just silly. Um, everyone be quiet. Bob wants to talk to me. And like, God, oh, I feel terrible. I'm so miserable. You know, I imagine God going, that is so silly, but I love you, man. You know, I just, it, it, any moment, you have access to God. Access to the power of God, access to the presence of God. Why? Because Jesus lives in us, the Holy Spirit. We're now the temple. And because he's involved, he will be the refiner. He's committed to you. He wants to remove the impurities. And you may be in a spot right now where you're feeling the heat in your life. And the heat chooses us to choose, forces us to choose between things. And it's a process that slowly makes us more wise, more courageous, more noble, more holy. But maybe right now you're in a situation where a boss is demanding you to do something unethical. This is the heat. You have to choose. My love of God. Or my love of my job. This could be hard. I don't, I don't say that lightly. Maybe you're tempted at school and you have to choose. Maybe um, it's a relationship and you, you're thinking I have, you're having to compromise on some key issues. That's the heat. The love of that relationship. The love of God versus the love for a relationship, a love for a family, a love for a future. Maybe you've been through a major disappointment and you have to choose, will I become bitter, angry? Resentful, cynical. You have to choose. Will I trust God and choose love, or am I going to be bitter and angry and resentful and hateful in my life? And if you're in the heat right now, let me tell you, I don't make light of it. Trust Jesus. Look to Jesus. Because the heat's not to cook you, it's to refine you. You're not a goose, you're gold. You're gold. And Jesus sees the greatness that is coming, like a jeweler making a beautiful ring. And so we have to trust him to know best, even when it does not seem like it. I want to address, uh, right at the end now, I want to address one other quick issue. And that is, if you read your Bible, if you're familiar with the uh, the four Gospels, two of the Gospels put this passage, or what looks like this passage, anyways, I'll say that, towards the end of Jesus' life, rather than uh, ministry, rather than the beginning. And to me, it leaves there's two options here. Number one, Jesus cleansed the temple twice. I could see that happening. Jesus is now making his claim to be the son of God. He comes back in three more years, and he does it again because everything's come back, and they're like, we've had it with you, pal. We're killing you. That could be it. The other option is, and this happens—you'll uh, you'll, sometimes, if you read about this, you hear about Ane writers, ancient Near Eastern writers, which is what these the Jews were, the Sumerians, were, all and ancient Near Eastern writers. One of the hallmarks of that type of writing is that they're not very worried about the timeline; they're more worried about stories and when you tell stories and how those stories develop further stories. It's like not too long ago, I did my mom's funeral. I shouldn't have brought that up. That was. Uh, and, and we were sitting around with my kids and, you know, her grandkids, my brothers and their kids. And we were talking about my mom. And we didn't start from the day she was born to the day she died. We just mentioned things that made us realize what a great person she was or how she was or things that she did that were special or funny or how she treated her grand. And it was all out of order because it was about what was important about that person. So I, I feel comfortable with either one. I don't know which one it is. But if you want more information on that, I'd be happy to give that to you, all right? Ultimately, though, it boils down to this. Jesus has a a zeal for purity for the temple, which we now are. And he's real, so he will follow through with that zeal. And sometimes it involves heat, and how we react is key in that time. Trust him. we just saying this even when it doesn't feel like it, even when we don't see him working. We're trusting. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word and the truth of it. Help us to be followers who walk in the footsteps of our rabbi Jesus. And we walk so close, his dust gets on us because we want to be like him. Lord, we pray that more and more as you look into the fire, the refining fire, and the gold. You see us looking like you. And we will be quick to give you the praise and thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming. God bless you. You are dismissed.